This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Howard Eisen, a, a cardiologist with Penn State Health and a professor of medicine, as well as medical director of the Advanced Heart Failure Cardiac Transplant and Mechanical Circulatory Support Programs at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center. Dr. Eisen, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Well, let's see. I grew up in New York and then um, go way back. I went to Cornell for undergraduate, the University of Pennsylvania for medical school. I just had my 40th med school reunion this past Saturday, virtual. It's really wonderful seeing a lot of my classmates. Nobody has aged, the most amazing thing. And then I was a medical resident at the University of Pennsylvania, cardiology fellow at Washington University, uh, Barnes Hospital. Then I came back to Penn to set up the heart transplant program. And um, and then uh, went from there to uh, be medical director of the heart transplant program at uh, at uh, Temple University, which which was in the um, the largest transplant program in the country at the time, and um, one of the first ventricular assist device programs. So it was very exciting. And then after that, in the early 2000s, I went to Drexel University in Hahnemann. Uh, University Hospital to be chief of cardiology, which I did for over 13 years. And then um, about three and a half years ago, I came to Hershey to direct the transplant program. So that's kind of my story. And I've been very interested in advanced heart failure, uh, cardiac transplantation, and uh, mechanical circulatory support and VADs for many years. Um, I've done clinical research, basic science research, and some epidemiologic research. So I've been uh, all over the place and I take care of lots of patients. I have a very uh, active uh, clinical program. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast today, Dr. Eisen. I think, you know, given your um, background and just all of your experience, this will be great to have you here. So I'm wondering, first off, from your perspective, what are the top three biggest issues in heart failure and surgery today? Well, you know, it's really an exciting time in heart failure because, um, we have a lot of excellent new therapies. Some of them are, are medical therapies. Some of them are new devices. And so, I mean, the, the very interesting thing about this is that it makes um, um, it may prevent us from actually needing to put ventricular assist devices and or doing um, transplants because patients may get better with medical therapy. And certainly, I've seen that in my practice. So the real question is is um, is how do we integrate these therapies into our approach? You know, right now we have a fairly um, regimented, uh, guideline-driven approach where we use beta blockers, uh, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone inhibitors. Um, but then, and now we have a newer version of that, the what are called the ARNIs, the angiotensin receptor uh, naprilysin uh, inhibitors. So the question is, um, how do we integrate the newer drugs, the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, which are um, are drugs that initially were developed to treat diabetes, but now have been shown to have significant benefits in heart failure patients. So how do we integrate them? And then there are other new drugs. Um, um, there are there is Varisigwat, uh, um, which was which was approved by the FDA. And um, uh, omocamptive, macarbal, 
which there are clinical trials underway. So where do these fit in and how do we add them to our medical therapy? And then we have devices too. And some of these, we have clear guidelines like um, uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy, which clearly um, improves uh, outcomes. So we know in which patient, patients where to use that. But then there are also other novel therapies like uh, cardiac contractility modulators, which are being studied in clinical trials. So how do we fit them in? And then uh, vagal stimulators and, and other drug uh, devices being studied. So I think that's one critical issue is where do we add and how do we add all the new therapies that we have? And it's kind of a, a nice problem to have a lot of new therapies because I remember 15, 20 years ago, we thought we'd hit the wall when it came to new pharmacologic therapies, but then Secubitril Valsartan came out. Um, then the uh, another issue is um, um, how do we get patients referred earlier rather than later for some of the therapies we have for advanced heart failure, specifically ventricular assist devices and transplants? We know that the earlier these patients are referred, the better their outcomes. And I think a lot of that will in, involve um, um, discussions with referring physicians, education. I'm chair of the American Heart Association Council on Clinical Cardiology, Heart Failure, and Transplant Committee. And we're putting together a statement for the AHA ACC membership on how to refer, when to refer patients with advanced heart failure, when to think about this. And referral can include not just these therapies, but also palliative care if a patient's not a candidate for these therapies. So I think that's another issue is how do we get people into the system sooner rather than later? And then I think the final issue would be um, how do we um, integrate some of the less invasive therapies for, um, for uh, structural heart disease, um, therapies to replace the aortic valve, the mitral valve, or treat them, fix the mitral valve. You know, we have all these percutaneous therapies. They're very successful. But the question is, how do we use this as opposed to surgery? We know probably we use these therapies in older, sicker patients. Um, but for example, wh when, do we, when do we use them in heart failure patients? And one thing that we grapple with is when to use percutaneous therapies to treat mitral regurgitation like the, the mitral clip in heart failure patients. It's clear that there are patients who benefit from these therapies, but also patients in whom uh, they're put in too late. And in that circumstance, that the outcomes can be less than favorable. Absolutely. And as part of that, the integration of percutaneous therapies to treat tricuspid regurgitation, which has been a challenge, there are clinical trials now, me being a non-interventionalist would have thought rather simplistically that that would have been one of the first things that would have been um, done because it's just much easier to access the tricuspid valve. But those studies and devices are just coming out now. I'm sorry, you're going to say something. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just that's a fascinating um uh, thing to think about in terms of knowing, you know, when to apply the different types of interventions at, at which levels and how that has been evolving within the field. And um, currently with the studies, as you mentioned, coming out, you know, what are some of the most recent um, studies saying or, or where is the literature tending currently? 
Well, I think I think the therapies are pretty well established. The literature supports them for treating aortic valve disease, aortic stenosis. That's been pretty well documented. I think that was those are the first percutaneous therapies out of the you know, out of the box in terms of starting to be used. Um, right now, I, I mean, what's happened with the, the percutaneous mitral valve repairs, the mitral clip, is there were two large studies. One was a COAP study in the United States, which showed favorable results, and another one in Europe, which uh, showed less favorable results. And the reason for that wasn't that the Europeans weren't very good at doing this, but that, um, but that they they studied sicker patients. So in a way, that was very instructive to us because we now had an idea of which patients were too sick and uh, which patients um, were sort of the sweet spot. But we still need to do additional studies to determine how far we can push the, the envelope and how, um, how uh, whether we can do patients who are somewhere in the middle between the COAP and the European study. So those, I think, are ongoing. But I have to tell you, at least anecdotally in clinical uh, experience, you know, we have, uh, I'm just finishing time on our inpatient service, and we had a number of people with uh, pretty significant advanced heart failure who were being considered for VADs and ultimately went to mitral clip. They had severe MR, and I thought, boy, you're really pushing the envelope. But these people did great, so maybe we can do sicker patients. It's so interesting to hear, and, um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, there are just so many different factors that can go into the decision-making on, you know, which um, procedure or treatments to go with. Now, considering everything we just discussed, how do you see heart care evolving in the next 18 months or so? Well, you know, it's a relatively um, short timeline, uh, and of course, everything that happens in, in the next 18 months is going to be determined by COVID. So, you know, COVID was such an overwhelming uh, disruption, not just in the medical system, but to to everything that we do. That um, that we have to think about that. And you know, I, I'm sure people have said this before, and you've heard this before, but I think it's true that we're going to be doing more things um, remotely than we did previously in terms of patient visits. I think that telehealth is here to stay. And um, we're going to be seeing patients more remotely. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a challenge, my personal opinion, for heart failure patients. I know there's some people around the country who using using Zoom calls can actually angle the computer and take a look at their patient's neck veins and see if they've elevated neck veins and therefore a volume overloaded. But I have not developed that uh, that talent yet. Uh, so I'm less comfortable doing that, and I'd rather see somebody who I think is tenuous or going in the wrong direction. I, I'd much rather see um, in person. Um, but I think we're going to be seeing – I think there's going to be more remote um, um, patient care. And um, then, you know, I, I think the other thing that we're going to be seeing is we're going to be trying to sort out some of the problems that are left in the wake of, of the, um, the, the COVID pandemic, you know, the, the, the so-called long COVID uh, complications. And some of these are related to autonomic dysregulation. So there are people who have profound hypotension um, as a result of COVID infections. Um, so 
So how do we deal with these people? What are the strategies? And then the final thing related to COVID, I think, is do these patients have significant myocarditis or not? And that that appears to be um, that appears to be controversial because there are studies uh, in, in the Big Ten. We had a number of uh, patients, uh, I mean athletes rather, who were COVID positive, and so um, they got cardiac MRs, MRIs to look for the presence of myocarditis. And a number of my colleagues here at Hershey were involved in that. And what they found was that there wasn't much myocarditis, but at least at Ohio State, they, they did a similar um, um, a similar uh, study and found more myocarditis. So I think we're going to have to be cognizant that th- there is a possibility that people with COVID infections, and this could even be relatively asymptomatic or not terribly um, symptomatic COVID patients could develop cardiac damage. So we'll have to be, we'll have to be alert to that. So that's, uh, that's one thing that I think is going to be uh, happening in the next 18 months. Um, And uh, one thing that we did, which actually was very, very instructive was we, we, during the pandemic, um, we really did not want to bring our transplant patients to the hospital to get endomyocardial biopsies, which is part of the routine care to look for rejection. So we had to figure out strategies of managing them remotely. And there are blood tests that can identify patients who are at risk for rejection. So ordinarily we get the blood test and then if they were abnormal, uh, we would then do uh, endomyocardial biopsies, but patients have to go to labs, they have to come to the hospital, get the blood, the, um, the blood test. So what we did was we had um, teams of phlebotomists who would go out to these patients' homes and uh, and get the get the blood drawn, and then we'd get the results, and we could make decisions based on those results. And that was in addition to um, keeping people remote from the potential of being exposed to COVID. Those were incredibly popular because patients can just wait at home. So. I think that we're going to see something like that happening, and it may end up that we're going to be looking at um, um, we're going to be looking at uh, at other biomarkers that we obtain remotely. So I could see us looking at brain natriuretic peptide or some of the other heart failure um, biomarkers and doing those remotely. So I think care may um, devolve to some degree beyond telemedicine in terms of physical examinations and, and histories. We may be, we may be um, devolving to doing imaging. Uh, there are portable echo probes that can be used in outpatients. That would be another thing that I see happening in the next 18 months. And um, so that's that's where I see things happening. Um, <clears throat> and of course, uh, the other issue is um, the mRNA therapeutics that resulted in um, in these very successful vaccines. You know, the whole concept of using mRNA as a therapy wasn't initially developed with vaccines in mind. It was a different world. And the thought was, and and I'm aware of this because early in my career, I was a faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania. One of my colleagues there, a med school classmate, Elliot Barnathan, was a vascular biologist. And he hired 
uh, a Hungarian PhD to run his lab, Caitlin Carrico, who developed the um, the mRNA vaccines. And they had a concept of using mRNA encoding for thrombolytic genes to put these in the coronary endothelium and essentially create the coronary endothelium that could prevent clots from developing and thus could prevent myocardial infarctions. So uh, if you think about the power of, of mRNA, the ability to put in any number of genes of interest, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful uh, technology that could be used for heart failure, vascular biology, arrhythmias. Um, so eight, 18 months may be a relatively short time for that to become clinical care. But I think within those 18 months, we're going to see clinical trials related to that. Um, so I think that's the next thing. And I, I, yeah, I'm aware that uh, both Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna are looking into these areas as well. Of course, everything's been uh, sidelined to some degree by the effort to develop the vaccines. That really sounds like a, a fascinating way to look at how medicine is going to be evolve and some of the different possibilities that are really out there. Um, yep. you know, so what is most exciting to you right now and what makes you nervous? What, what I described, these new therapeutics and diagnostic tests are things that really make me incredibly excited. Um, uh, you know, the, the ability to uh, insert genes that could um, using mRNA technology, insert genes that could favorably affect the development of heart failure or of, of atherosclerosis. I think that that's incredibly exciting. We're involved in the project looking at kind of the opposite of putting mRNA in, but actually silencing mRNA, silencing the genes that do bad things. So that's the other side of the coin. And I think that that's incredibly exciting as well. So, you know, I think it's definitely a molecular age in terms of therapeutics and diagnostics, I'd mentioned some of the blood tests that we use to determine if people are developing rejection or not. And um, I think uh, I think that's a product of the molecular age. And I was involved in the early studies of those. And it's been very exciting to be able to assess using molecular techniques, the degree of immune activation or the presence of um, of transplant uh, injury. I think these are incredibly exciting and powerful tools. So this is a great age to be in. I mean, um, in, in terms of uh, clinical research, translational research, and also the, uh, the ability to change therapeutics. I mean, it's really a, a, an amazing time. So that what's make, that's what makes me excited. What makes me nervous is, is a number of things. One is what will be the ultimate consequence of all of these people, ten, tens of millions worldwide, including the United States, who develop COVID. What will be, um, will long COVID be a serious, serious thing that involves millions of patients? Will there be lots of people who develop myocarditis as a result? We don't know, but that kind of makes me nervous because that could stress the healthcare system. And that goes back to um, uh, the other thing that makes me nervous, which is our kind of creaky healthcare system. On the one hand, you know, there are many miracles that that happen and then the rollout of the vaccine is one of those, just very well orchestrated and really was an example to the rest of the world of how things could be done. But 
you know, the gaps in, in healthcare, the, um, the many patients who do not have coverage, um, I think that that makes me nervous. And the, the rather tattered social safety network that we have, uh, I think the COVID pandemic kind of revealed that this was a problem. So um, that's what makes me nervous as well, just the consequences of COVID, uh, long-term consequences, and um, and then, of course, um, reforming the healthcare system so that we can make sure everybody gets excellent care. And I guess the final thing would be, um, how do we handle a future pandemic? And we know that's going to happen. Um, I was reading an article in Science Magazine where they were talking about uh, um, coronaviruses in China among bats. And there are thousands of coronaviruses that can can um, uh, infect humans. And uh, also, um, uh, the, the other place, there was, another, other, there was an article in Nature just to kind of stir the paranoia further about how the Amazon could be a source of, of, um, of infections. Uh, Joshua Lederberg, a Nobel laureate, said many years ago that the one thing that could end man's dominion and existence on Earth is viruses. So, you know, I think we have to have a game plan for the next pandemic, which is going to happen and uh, could be as contagious, but even more deadly. And, and so we have to learn from our prior experience. And I think the one thing that I've observed in some of the countries in Asia, and I know physicians there in South Korea, in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, is they had experience before with uh, coronaviruses, the, the SARS um, the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s in Taiwan, uh, the MERS in uh, in South Korea, those were a little bit different from um, from coronavirus in that when people got those viruses, they got sick. So you knew who was, who was infected and you knew who their contacts were. So you could isolate them. You could isolate uh, um, their contacts. Uh, and in that way, those viral outbreaks never became pandemics. But the thing about the coronavirus was it wasn't quite as deadly. It was deadly, but there were a lot of asymptomatic people spreading the virus. And that is the big, that's the big problem. So what if we have a virus that is as contagious um, and yet is deadlier? That's a, that's a nightmare scenario. So we have to have pandemic planning ahead. And um, I'm hoping that we're doing that uh, at this point. Um, I, my wife's an infectious disease physician. So I kind of get a lot of spill over about this. <laughs> and so I sort of live with infectious disease in a way. But I'm reminded of a comment that one of my professors made in medical school after I finished my infectious disease rotation. He said, you know, infectious disease is really interesting. But the one thing that I have to say is that, in, you know, we can treat everything now. And that makes it a little bit boring. That was in 1980 before HIV and, and everything else that came out. And so it's not boring anymore. But you can see when you think about HIV, Ebola, Zika, and then the coronaviruses and the, uh, the, the pandemic flus, that all of these are zoonoses. So as we have easier transportation and communication, um, the likelihood that some infectious agent that's not supposed to be in humans ends up in humans increases. And that's one thing that kind of makes me nervous as well as some of the other things I mentioned. 
Got it. Got it. Well, it's definitely a lot of different considerations there and, you know, really um, hopefully we're, we're able to prepare and, and be ready for any future pandemics. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, could you briefly share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Uh, yeah, I think uh, the very first thing I'd say, and it's maybe kind of trite, but I think it is still true, is just uh, basically to thine own self be true. Um, follow, you know, follow what you like to do, your dreams, um, things that you find rewarding, whether it's patient care, clinical research, basic science, just do what you think is uh, to make a difference and help patients. So uh, somebody once said to me that, uh, um, that, uh, I'm trying to see if I can phrase this correctly, but uh, a really meaningful, if you enjoy your job, it means you never really go to work. It's always enjoyable. So, I mean, what you do should be enjoyable and rewarding and beneficial to others. Uh, that's number one. Number two, corollary to that is don't let, you know, don't let other people convince you that what you're doing is not the right thing. And then the third thing would be to always find strong supportive mentors mentorship is absolutely critical so somebody who will support you will um, be able to provide you with guidance and a lot of this guidance is not necessarily um, done vocally it's kind of more like child rearing in that uh, you observe what your what your mentor does either in the research setting or in the clinical setting and you pick up uh, tips and good habits and good customs from those people. So I think those are the three uh, things that I would recommend uh, or I would advise emerging leaders. It, it's it's a much more sympathetic environment now than certainly when I and people of my uh, generation were growing up. There's much more of an effort by national organizations, the ACC, the AHA, the ISHLT, to cultivate and develop uh, uh, fellows in training and early career of physicians, get them involved in leadership roles, um, and on in uh, in committees, and also get them involved in national, international uh, uh, conferences as moderators, as speakers. And I think that's that's very very good. That's a very positive thing. Uh, I guess one thing I would add is, if you're ever asked to be involved in reviewing grants, either for an NIH study section. Or an American Heart Association grant review committee say yes. The the experience will be incredibly rewarding. You'll see really good science done by other people. You'll get ideas of how to construct scientific ideas, how to build mentorship team teams, how to build collaboration. So that's another that's rule number four. I added the rule. Oh fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's great, Dr. Eisen. I think all that information is so, so helpful and, um, you know, really, really interesting for our listeners to hear. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a great discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Take care. Yeah, thank you.